Welcome to Talks at GS, where leading thinkers share insights and ideas shaping the world. This session of Talks at GS was recorded before a live audience. Welcome to Talks at GS. It's really exciting to be joined here by legendary producer and screenwriter Brian Grazer, and you're out with a new book, Face to Face. That's right. Which talks about human contact and looking somebody <laughs> in the eye does, and really right. connecting, but we're just, we're really central glad. To, central to all of our lives. Central to all of our lives. You want to close any deal, want to get anything done, you really do have to look at somebody. Absolutely. <laughs> so you are one of the great storytellers in the world. You know, how how do you get there? You went off to USC. You actually did a year of law school, yeah. right? Is that yeah, correct? Yeah. And you wound up in a junior level job at Warner Brothers, right? Like yes. an entry level clerk, gopher, yeah. something like that. So, <laughs> yeah. And okay. how did you how did you go from there to get to the point where you started producing movies? They sign, they give me a tiny little office, uh, this big of an office, no window, anything, way down the hall. And my job is that just to sit in this office and wait to deliver papers if papers are to be delivered. So I go a week with really nothing to do. <laughs> so I just look around, meet people, look at people. <laughs> um, and then I'm assigned to give, sent to go give Warren Beatty, who was the biggest star in the world, these documents that would be uh, applicable to the movie Heaven Can Wait. So he lives, Warren Beatty lives at the, at the Beverly Wilshire Hotel in the penthouse. He occupies the entire penthouse suite. I show up to hand the papers. Some guy comes down and one of his assistants says, give me the, do you, you don't say the F word here, do you? Well, yeah. some people <laughs> says, do, I don't. Says, I says, don't on television. I'm not gonna do it. He <laughs> says, give me the papers. <laughs> I said, I, I'm supposed to hand them to Mr. Beatty. He said, just give me the papers. <laughs> I think to say, the papers aren't valid unless I hand them directly to Mr. Beatty himself. The guy goes, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so somebody else comes down, greets me, takes me up the elevator. I go to Beatty, and I immediately start asking him questions. I say, well, here are the papers. I just got this new job, and I'm like, I'm asking questions sometimes through declarative sentences so they don't feel put out. I don't know, it was just a thing that happened, just happened. And he talks to me for an hour. He says, sit down and hang out. I look out at the terrace, his place is amazing. And I, I do the hour with Warren Beatty and I'm thinking, God, I could do this with everybody. <laughs> like this is how, like, how old are you? 24 years old or something like no, that? No, 22. 22. Okay. Yeah. yeah Even better. Yeah. Yeah. 22. Every one of these months and years were really important to me at this point. So I was 22. And then on my next one was to William Peter Blatty, the author of the book, The Exorcist. That was amazing. Oh, that one, I had to drive up Pacific Coast Highway in the company car, a red Pontiac Bonneville. And my job was to hand these papers to William Peter Blatty. I said, I have to hand them directly to you, uh, to, to the, Mr. Blatty. He says, can I offer you an espresso? I go, absolutely. I never drank an espresso ever in my life. I didn't know what that was. <laughs> so I drink espresso, I've talked to him for a while. This goes on and I'm realizing I can do this. And then I just thought, then 
a series of very fortunate events occur. A giant office opens up at the very end of the hall, four, three times, four times bigger than my boss's office, Mr. Peter Connect. He was senior, uh, his, his name was Jack Friedman, he was head of business affairs, he gets fired. His office is gigantic, and it's right outside the cadre of offices, the executive suite, which was John Calley, who was vice chairman of the board, and he was very, very creative and a legend, dating Ali McGraw and great people and stuff like that, just a very bon vivant guy. And then his boss was named Ted Ashley, who never showed up, and then Frank Wells, who was legendary, and he went to, you know, of course, went to Walt Disney. Yeah. So I realize in this great office adjacent to theirs, I could see the circular drive where they park. Only they're allowed to park. So what I would do is I'd leave my giant office. I'd leave my office, and I'd see, like, John Callie come up the stairs, and I'd go, oh, Mr. Callie, like I didn't know. And, he was and, <laughs> and then he'd say, you know, you belong in my office. And I'd sit on the couch, because he didn't have a desk. It was a, a couch, and I, that was the point where I realized offices looked like living rooms. He had boats on the wall, beautiful people. He had a giant marlin that he had caught. And I'm thinking, I'm never going to law school. Like, <laughs> I mean, that, why would I do that? These guys, they just talk for a living, and, and they you know, work out of places like this. So that was a kind of a great thing, because I could learn a lot by asking him questions. And then I thought, wow, I can even expand this further. I was at a point sort of robbing corporate, uh, you know, their, their corporate property in a way. I mean, I was like borrowing it a little bit. But <laughs> I then created this process of, I know there's a long answer, but I then, it's a good answer. I then decided what I would do is I'd call all of the living legends that are the CEOs, Lou Wasserman, Jules Stein, who founded MCA, the greatest master directors, Herbert Ross, Mel Brooks, Richard Brooks, by the way, same time. But anyway, I would call them up, and I'd speak to their assistant, and I'd say, my, hi, my name is Brian Grazer. I work at Warner Brothers Business Affairs. This is not associated with studio business, but I really admire your boss for the following reasons. Now, I didn't have a smartphone, but I would research them, so I had something to say, so I didn't just seem like a dilettante, you know? Like I said, oh, he, Mr. Wasserman did the following thing. Oh, I didn't know Jules Stein created glasses, or I didn't say that, that was too stupid. But, um, <laughs> but he, was, he was an optometrist. So I got to meet every single person I reached out to. I told my boss, Peter Connect, I'm going to discontinue the idea of going to law school for now, postpone it till the following year. I'm going to stay working with you. I love you. I love it here. And I did that for 18 months till they finally just fired me straight out. <laughs> they should have. I mean, they... But that was, was a productive 18 months. It was a really productive eight, 18 months. What might be relevant here is then what I did is I thought I was incredibly smart because I was able to gather all this information and I was able to understand how to create leverage, leverage in this very opaque universe of Hollywood because it just seems like parties, and you know, it's, it's really hard to understand this business that we were in. But I was able to understand how to create leverage, and I thought I was even smarter than that, so I thought I should be president of somebody's company. And I would do pretty well at the first 15 or 20 minutes, and then they'd just ding me out, probably because I was kind of a bullshitter. And um, I mean, just a little bit. I mean, I stretched things a little bit. Not too much. Just a little bit. I wasn't a liar, although I did write the story to Liar, Liar, a movie I later produced. <laughs> <laughs> um, so 
Then I thought, I'm not getting any jobs. I'm only collecting unemployment. I'm going to do the exact opposite. I'm going to take the shittiest job and live in the process, not, a, not, a, not in the result. And that became a defining uh, a choice for me. And by living in the process in this terrible job, I did become really successful pretty young. Like I produced a 20-hour miniseries on the Ten Commandments, where each commandment was an underlying theme in a contemporary moral dilemma. And I produced this very sexy, high-rated TV show called um, Zuma Beach, The Day in the Life of Zuma Beach. I mean, if you gave it dignity, it's like saying, I was doing, I wanted to do American graffiti at the beach, but it was really just, you know, attractive people. So how did you, how did you meet Ron? How, how did you meet Ron and talk okay. about, I mean, your partnership, your partnership with Ron is an incredible partnership in the context of any business, but particularly okay. in, in Hollywood. I mean, it's, it's kind of unprecedented for two people to partner the way you guys Yeah, do. we have the longest partners, partnership of any partnership in Hollywood. Talk, how, how did you guys meet? Talk a little bit about that relationship and that partnership. Okay, so I'd met many people over those years that I've, I've just referred to as now, now 26 at Paramount. Because I, got, I, I became like sort of an in-demand object for having produced these, these shows very young. Like Zuma Beach. Like, well, Zuma Beach... My boss at the time was the guy, the tough guy, was very embarrassed until I got high ratings, and then he, then he <laughs> was happy to be on board. It's <laughs> <laughs> the way it always works. <laughs> it is. It's the way it always works. So, um, so now I'm at Paramount with a great deal as a producer, and I, I'm still, I still have this discipline of meeting a new person at least once a week. And I had, it was like a Thursday, and I hadn't met that person because I, I do like do it with a discipline. And I looked out the window and I saw, you know, Richie Cunningham, Ron Howard out the window. And I thought, wow, I'd like to meet Richie. Who is Richie Cunningham? You know, I mean, he's a child actor. So I yell out the window, I go, hey, Ron, Ron Howard. And, um, you know, you can tell the way I, I have some energy and I'm talking, scared him. So we kind of moved, ran away. You know, like, <laughs> and then I called his secretary. I said, hey, I'm the guy that just yelled at Ron and can I meet? And, Anyway, he agreed to meet with me, uh, and, um, and he had this glow, this aura about him of goodness, and he, I, could tell, I knew he was talented after we spoke, and, and, uh, but we both had as higher aspirations that we could unify on, and he wanted to be you know, a, a big-time theatrical movie director, and I wanted to be a big-time theatrical movie producer as opposed to just like doing television, stuff like that. And so I said, you know what, basically, I didn't say these words, but I'll bet on you, I believe in you. I said this to him, because an, I'm an outside person, he'd be a sort of an inside person, I'm a prospector, he's a miner. <laughs> and and uh, we ended up getting our first movie made, Night Shift. I said, I have two movies, that I, both of them which, one I wrote the story, one I wrote the script, one of them is a romantic comedy about a man falling in love with a mermaid, and the other one is an R-rated comedy about two guys that run a call girl ring out of the New York City morgue. And he goes, that's the one I want. <laughs> <laughs> because he was sort of, you know, he felt like he was sort of deeply stigmatized by this goody-goody guy and thought, I'm going to do the sexy one. But talk about Splash, because apparently you guys shopped around trying to get somebody to make Splash for like seven years, right? Yes. And so, so you know, and you pitched and pitched and pitched. And ultimately yeah. Disney bought it, right? 
Eventually, yes, exactly. Eventually, Disney bought it. But for five years, I was pitching this movie that, where every the takeaway was it's a mermaid movie, and well, I just was a mermaid movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, but I had to reframe it yeah. so that somebody would buy it. I I said, don't you root for love? I mean, well, how would you, how could you? I went. I started to sell the theme as opposed to the story. Mm -hmm. So if you sell. Don't you root for love or don't like parenthood? Don't you root for family? Don't you root for family to be together? I mean, I did the same with the rest of development. Yeah, they're bigger than life characters, but they want to be together. They're just dysfunctional. So in the case of Splash, it was the beginning of that, that kind of crusade. And it took a very long time for me to actually break through, and, but I sold it by reframing it based on the theme and I sold it to Disney and it was their first hit in nine years of straight flops. Big hit. And I sold it to Walt Disney's son-in-law named Ron Miller, and he bought it. And it was a, yeah, it was a really big hit. It was a big hit. So there, there, there are two movies that I want you to talk about a little bit because I think they're, okay. I think they're both interesting. You know, the, the first is Beautiful Mind, and the second one I want to ask you about Apollo 13 because that's okay. a movie I always love. But talk, talk first about Beautiful Mind. You know, why that story, and how do you turn it into something that's as well-loved critically as it was popularly? Yeah, well, okay, good. That's a great question. Um, because it wasn't really designed that way. I mean, the book, that is. So basically, um, well, first of all, I have a son that has mild Asperger's. And I would drop him off at school at Malibu High School, and I, I would... I want I, many, of course, of the things that happened, but I, I dropped him off, and then I came back, and I looked through the chain link fence, and I saw that he had gotten his lunch, and he was laid it on a tape, put it on a, on a picnic table, and some kids hid his lunch. And I thought, wow, that's so mean. And uh, of course, they were able to do that because he was, you know, mildly disabled. And, um, and it was just, it was so painful to watch. So I, I, I thought about mental disability and I thought about how we look at people, just how we see each other. And, and then it sort of brought me for, you know, forward in watching people that have really serious uh, disabilities where you see somebody, you do this of course in New York, you see someone yelling in the middle of the street or yelling at a wall and really they're not, disposable people, they're, they're not, they, they're often, they're bipolar or they have a mental disability or schizophrenic and they're living out something very, in a very animated form, but it's because they're living it in another narrative. And I just thought, I'm gonna try to find something, a story that could help destigmatize mental disability. And I saw that there was a story of about John Nash, and it was an excerpt in Vanity Fair, and I thought, I'm gonna get this. So I went in this bidding war against every other Hollywood producer because it got kind of popular. And it came down to, oddly enough, between me and someone named Scott Rudin, who also does really good work. So they, the Nashes ended up picking me to do it, to make this movie. That was good news, amazing. However, I decided then I better read the book. Because <laughs> I only kind of skimmed it and I, because I'm a poor reader. And then I read it and I realized, oh my God, I got it, but it's not cinematic at all. 
how do I make it cinematic? How do I make it engaging? And a couple of things happened for me. One was I, met, I remember meeting a woman named Veronica Denegri 20 years ago in a curiosity conversation who survived 18 months of torture in Chile um, by living in an alternate narrative. So I thought, wow, that's exactly the life of a schizophrenic. So that's why the movie A Beautiful Mind starts in an alternate reality and therefore changes, shifts the genre experience for, of the viewer to instead of a drama or a documentary, to then a thriller. And a thrillers can engage you in what would be a, a subjective experience, a journey. Yeah. And you know this from music, because music stories too. But so that's what made it successful, made it what it was, and and uh, that's the story of a beautiful really great, really, <laughs> no, really, we really great Oscar, story. Yeah. yeah, absolutely, which is which was always good news. a great story. Yeah. Good news. So Apollo 13. Yeah. So Apollo 13 preceded A Beautiful Mind, and, um, and the way that came down is Jim Lovell, the actual astronaut, wrote a 12-page 12, 12 sort of outline of, of what was going to be this, this movie or book that he hoped to write, and, and, and that he hoped would later be a movie. And so I read the 12 pages, and I think, wow, this is really kind of compelling. But, it, but these 12 pages, like any story, is about many things. It could be about aerospace or aerodynamics or the Apollo program, why we want to go into space. That, I mean, that, that's a, a book in itself, why man wants to adventure into space. Or it could be about survival. Again, because of Veronica Denegre, this curiosity conversation, I chose to see it singularly as a survival story. So I thought, wow, this is what this is about. It's a survival story. So I care a lot about survival stories. So that's, so that's what, what focused me. That, yeah. The other thing I really care about, and I do a series on genius that's, that's about, that was way over here I did, I do on Albert Einstein for 10 hours, Pablo Picasso, and now Aretha Franklin about genius. I love to celebrate greatness. I love to celebrate human capacity and capability. And I love to celebrate you know, bravery and, and stuff like that. So. Um, I thought, this has both things. Astronauts are brave. They're really prepared. They're the most prepared people to be launched on an engine into outer space, which is absurd if you think about it. And these guys are fully prepared mentally and physically, and yet they weren't prepared for this event. And what is going to happen? Now, the world knew what happened. They came back safely. So I thought, OK, I still want to make this. I went and got Tom Hanks. He liked it, liked the 12 pages. Ron liked the 12 pages. We built a script. And we said, I don't think this movie is going to make any money because everybody knows the end. I mean, how are we going to? But, but we, still, we, we think it's a quality thing. That's all we thought. It's going to be quality. So we all said, let's put on a little piece of paper how much we think our movie will make. So the highest number was mine at $40 million. We thought. If we got $40 million and it's good, we spare embarrassment, da 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 da. The movie comes out, it does $400 million. So, wow, what a, that's fantastic. We're like so thrilled. Then what happens is we think that's a victory, like spiking the ball in the end zone, the story's over, yay, done. Then we get nominated, we get nine Oscar nominations. 
for, as, for best picture, picture etc. So that's good news and kind of bad news because we thought that story was over, the chapter, the book's done. So now we find ourselves with as much anxiety as we had before, <laughs> you know, hoping that the movie would do over $40 million. Now we have equal or more anxiety, hoping that we don't get embarrassed at the, Ox at the, at the Oscars. So now the Oscars, we're getting very, very close, and everybody, all the odds makers, Las Vegas, everybody's saying, um, you're going to win. Apollo 13's going to win. It's patriotic. It, it's in alignment with the 20-year anniversary of NASA. Da, da, da. I think I'm going to win. I've written a speech. I've got it perfectly written out. I know how I'm going to do it, the whole thing. Okay, so now, is, is, and a couple of people might know the story, but so now it's the day of the Oscars. I got my speech in my tuxedo. I'm feeling really like ready to go. It's the final envelope of the evening. Sidney Poitier, the esteemed Oscar-winning actor, is deliberately opening up this envelope. As, and I say deliberately, is everything about Sidney Poitier is mannered and perfect. He peels it open. He looks at you. My eye contact with his, I'm only like in the fifth row. <laughs> I was like... He and I were like this, you know, and it looks like he's saying B. I feel like a B is rolling off his lip. I think I must have imagined it, that the B was rolling off of his lip. And so as I'm certain it's a B, I get up and I walk to receive the Oscar. And the camera is even on me. They can, it's, and I go to, and he said, Braveheart. <laughs> So I'm going, this is terrible. <laughs> this is like the most terrible thing that could happen to me. And so I turn around, and a chairman of uh, uh, another studio goes like this. Loser. <laughs> he actually did the loser sign on me, which sent me into a point where I was like taking Xanax every night. <laughs> so... <laughs> that, that's the story, but there was, a, there was a sort of a compelling final note. When I got back to my seat, and I was super embarrassed, sitting at the end, Jim Lovell, the actual astronaut, is sitting two over. He reaches over Tom Hanks and Ron Howard. He grabs my wrist with real authority and said, I never made it to the moon either. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like, he that's kind of, great. <laughs> so... <laughs> That's the story. Let's shift and talk a little bit about Hollywood, kind of the future technology in Hollywood. You know, you had a you had a exclusive production deal with Universal Studios at the time you did it. That was a big deal. You got very involved in television when television started to get more interesting. You know, in the 1990s, and and after that, you're involved with all the streaming platforms. Now, where's where's this all going? The big streaming companies have a massive budget going against production content. You know, you think about what you do. And you look at these platforms and how, there's how they're evolving. Where, where's this all going? What's this going to look like in the next five to ten years? Look, I, I, I think all of these platforms that are emerging and the streamers that are emerging and, you know, and have almost an endless amount of money to create content, it, and in some ways it democratizes voices all over the world and makes it a global medium storytelling. And that's a good thing. It's definitely a good thing to give voices that wouldn't normally get heard a, an opportunity or a chance. Those are really good things. The oversaturation element is kind of disturbing because then it's hard to, it's hard to find that thing 
that you're, that, you know, this, when you go on Netflix or any of these, it's really hard to find the thing that you thought you wanted to watch. Um, it's hard to create differentiation. So right now, there's just so much stuff. You don't know what's special, what's not. It's impossible. It's just shelf life. You know, it's like, where are you on this shelf? And how long will that shelf life last? So thinking about that, thinking about the future, you've, you've launched an incubator called Imagine Impact. I have. The antidote. Imagine Impact is a content accelerator. So we have created a boot camp, just like the boot camp at Y Combinator, where we have Oscar-winning writers and Emmy-winning writers teaching people from all over the world. Now in 90 countries, they submit their application to Imagine Impact. A kid from Zimbabwe with only $12 in his whole life got in, passed this whole, got through this entire obstacle course, got into the boot camp. He wrote an animated movie after eight weeks and having a mentor. Four studios bid on it. He sold it for $400,000 cash, which now he has $400,000. And that's just the beginning of his He's money trade. Yeah. He's off and running. We've started so many careers with this. So that creates a huge global network effect that will be valuable, I think, to us, imagine, or rather impact itself, and this, this company, this thing called Impact, and it's gonna be valuable to these voices living all over the world, in India and all over the planet. In fact, I said India because this, this one Indian girl got in, she has the funniest TV show of all time. It's about how she became like an expert liar to avoid having to do the customs of her family in America, <laughs> you know, conforming to their customs. So, but, but we've gotten some great, we have tremendous results on our, you know, on our three first beta tests, and, and it, we've already created now a gigantic network. All right, so just to wrap up, quick lightning round. Favorite person you've ever, you've talked to all these people, favorite person you've ever met? You. Oh, hardly. <laughs> okay, well, favorite person you've ever met. Favorite person you've ever met? Um, Jonas Salt. The one film, the one film you wish you produced that you didn't produce? Um, oh God, what do I always say? Where is Veronica? Oh, Back to the Future. <laughs> I know it sounds crazy, but, but you said wish, and it's really yeah. important. Wish, yeah. Okay, so I wrote and produced comedies for 17 years. You know, I made some really, a lot of hit comedies. I was only the comedy person. All of a sudden, this movie, Back to the Future, comes out. It completely blows my mind because the level, its execution, the intricacy of the execution was so brilliant, I, I, I wish I could have made that. Okay, the film that's had the most impact on you. Blazing Saddles. Blazing Saddles? Blazing Saddles. Wow, that's a classic. Because it was a shock. The guy said everything. He said everything you shouldn't say, and it worked, which, which told me a lot. <laughs> and last but not least, <laughs> so. best piece of advice you've ever, you've ever received. I, I have so many good pieces of advice. This one, a friend of mine said, when I didn't have the money to buy my first house, he said, imagine this, okay. Is it inevitable that you're going to be able to afford this in the near future? Imagine it. I said, yeah. He goes, buy the house. So on every decision, <laughs> he go, on, on every decision, whether it's like, sell my company to a tech company, do this, do that. I get very involved in the romance of, and excitement of things like that. But is it inevitable I'll be happy? Is it inevitable it's good for me? Often, I, when I get that far with it, I say, no. And then I don't do it. 
I mean, I took one giant job once at Paramount uh, before I became the producer to run Paramount Television. I was this young guy, and it was like such a superstar thing, and it was like great announcement. I quit in two weeks. I said I, to Michael Eisner, I quit. I can't, I can't do this. You signed a contract. I don't care. It's not for me. I can't do it. I just, it's not, for, it's not, it's not me. Good piece of advice. Be yourself. Do what's, do what's Be right. Be yourself. Do what you imagine is inevitable. What's the win for everybody? Look, always great to be with you, and thank you for doing this. I know everybody enjoyed uh, it. You're welcome. Appreciate it. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks. Thanks. Appreciate it. Thanks. This podcast was recorded on September 17th, 2019. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part, or disclosed by any recipient to any other person. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the recipient. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty, express or implied, as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any recipient is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that recipient, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.